Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of An Unexpected Journey and uh, God's Pattern for Creation, Reformation Sketches, and most recently, John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. We'll be discussing these titles and more, and they're all available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome to Office Hours. Hello, Scott. Great to be here. Well, you've got a, a biography out that people can read, but perhaps not everybody listening to the podcast has has read the biography. Hard to believe, but possible, I suppose. <laughs> Statistically possible for the for the one or two out there that haven't read it. Uh, tell us a little bit and them uh, about about yourself. Where are you from? And uh, and particularly, I'm interested in how you became reformed. Well, I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California, and uh, was raised in a Methodist family. And it was really while I was in high school that I came to know some reformed high school kids who invited me to go to church with them. And I would say in my junior year of high school, I was converted by hearing the gospel clearly, really, for the first time, and um, have really been connected with reformed churches one way or another ever since then. So when did you have begin to have a sense that you were called to ministry? Um, and and uh, how did you get from growing up in the Bay Area um, and uh, to, to seminary and, and to ministry? Well, it was really by a series of small steps rather than any one moment, I think, where everything became clear. I had always been interested in history, even when I was in grammar school. I loved to read sort of popular historical kinds of works uh, that stayed with me into my college years, and uh, I majored in history uh, in college. And uh, in that, I particularly became interested in the Reformation. That was a combination, of course, of my historical interests and my Christian convictions. And uh, I was an undergraduate at Stanford University, and there was a great professor of Reformation history there, Louis Spitz, who was himself a, a devout Missouri Synod Lutheran and um, would speak so passionately in class about the meaning of the Reformation that it was a real confirmation of my interests and and an attraction to try to learn more about uh, the Reformation. By the time I uh, finished college, I was fairly sure that I wanted to go to seminary, but I was not sure what I would do after seminary. I was already beginning to think possibly about graduate work in history. So I went off to uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, actually, it was Gordon Divinity School when I entered there, and it had become Gordon-Conwell when I graduated. They, and they were still building the foundation? Is that that's what you're telling me? They'd, they'd moved out of the woods and put up a stone building? Is that? This was, yes, back before the Great War. And uh, <laughs> yes, Gordon and uh, Conwell Seminaries merged in 1969 or 1970, just at the end of my seminary career. And uh, it was a good choice for me. I'd been born and raised and educated in California. This took me back to Massachusetts, and um, it was a seminary where there were both staunch Reformed teachers, such as uh, Meredith Klein and uh, Roger Nicole, but also uh, teachers representing other theological traditions. So since my whole kind of Christian exposure had been in Reformed circles, it was good to hear other points of view, and that time really confirmed me 
uh, very much in my Reformed convictions. Let's go back to your time in, at university. Uh, and you were at Stanford twice, right? Well, right. After seminary, I went back. Uh, I continued to feel that I wanted to do graduate work in, in history, but the only place I really wanted to do it was back at Stanford. And so I was admitted and went back. You studied with some fairly interesting folks. It was a great time to be there. Not only was, was Spitz there and a wonderful person to work with, but also Wilhelm Pauk, uh, who had studied with Harnack and was friends with Tillich and Niebuhr and a, a very distinguished historian, but also a delightful person. He was teaching there as part of his second retirement. And then uh, for uh, one or two quarters while I was there, uh, Heiko Obermann came and taught, and I was able to TA for him and got to know him fairly well in that time. So you had exposure to some really significant minds in the formation of American uh, theology, directly and indirectly, and some very significant uh, historical writers, uh, pioneering, really, historical writers. Right. Uh, Spitz pioneering in um, exploring the relationship of the Renaissance to the Reformation, and Obermann, of course, in many ways a pioneer exploring in more detail the relationship of late medieval thought to the Reformation. So it was a great combination. You've often described yourself as a quiet, bookish uh, child, and you, I think you mentioned something about that in the biography. How does a quiet, bookish child end up one of the better-known Reformed writers, teachers, ministers, uh, professors in the English-speaking world? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> well, we have 30 minutes to, to fill here, so see what, maybe you can make something up. Well, I, I, um, I think as a, a child, I was more like my mother, who was, was quiet, a little bit shy, and, and not eager to meet new people, content to be by herself. She, she was an only child growing up and was used to quiet. Uh, my dad, by contrast, was a very outgoing guy. He was the kind of person at school everybody liked, and he liked everybody, and was, of course, the president of the student body and went on to politics in our hometown. So he, He's mayor, right? He, he was mayor of our hometown, right. And there is a, a park in your hometown named after your family, is that right? Right, Godfrey Park, because my grandfather had also been mayor uh-huh. and uh, had been a reforming mayor at a time when there was a lot of corruption in the city. And was, so, was he a goo-goo? A, a good a good government man. That's what they call the good government men in the early 20th century. I see. Well, I guess he was because uh, the people he replaced in city politics went to prison. And uh, <laughs> yes. so he was honored for cleaning up city politics by a park being named after him. And one of my treasured possessions is a picture of the dedication of the park when I was a babe in arms held by my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather were there at the dedication of Godfrey Park. If your predecessors go to jail, that, that sort of sets the bar fairly low. So you that's true. Don't have to do a lot. Not to not to diminish the accomplishments of your grandfather, who was also a good friend of Earl Warren's, and uh, so there the family was politically connected. But my dad was a very outgoing person, and over the years, I think I've become more like him. That's interesting. It, it, it's interesting how we balance between our parents that we reflect the different personality uh, attributes of our of our parents. Tell us, uh, uh, talk a little bit about your. Uh, vocation to ministry. How did you become conscious that, yes, you know, I think, I, yes, I want to study the Reformation, and I want to be a scholar, but I want to do more than that. I want to be in, in the visible institutional church. Well, as I was completing my seminary study, I, I really was uncertain whether to pursue pastoral ministry or graduate school. I, I think I was still at a stage where I was a little shy, and, and the idea of pastoral ministry was a little intimidating. 
And but I decided that since Stanford was the only place I really wanted to do graduate work, that I'd apply, and if I got in, I'd go. If I didn't, then I'd pursue pastoral ministry. But I got in, and so I went off to graduate school, sort of with the idea that I'd really like to teach in a seminary. And then in the years of graduate study, I thought, well, maybe I could also teach in a secular university and do some good for the Christian cause there. Um, and so it was still kind of uncertain ex exactly where I was headed. But near the end of my graduate studies, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia had an opening and offered me a job. And so it was sort of by just a series of small steps that I didn't entirely plan. The Lord opened up doors along the way, and I just sort of breezed through. What was your early church life like? How, what sort of influence did that have on you? How did people receive you coming into the church? And, and how did you perceive the church as you, as you first entered it? Can you reflect on that? Well, the, the, the Christian students I fell in with in high school were uh, Dutch Reformed, uh, Christian Reformed specifically. And um, uh, I, I immediately responded both to the, um, the, the commitment to the Bible, the um, insight into what the Bible said in a, in a really thoughtful way, and to the strong sense of community that existed in that church where uh, people really knew one another, really cared for one another, where generations were represented. Uh, when, I, when I went uh, to the Methodist church, it seemed to me there were only very elderly people there. They were probably in their 50s, but it uh, struck me at the time that uh, <laughs> if I hung around by the next year, I might be the only one left, whereas there was a kind of vitality, uh, both intellectually and spiritually, but also just socially, communally, in the Dutch Reformed Church that really impressed me. As I think a high school that, kid. I think that's interesting because that's not always the report one hears when when when, when people talk about how, you know coming into the reformed church uh, for the first time. The first time I took Barbara to a reformed church after the service she cried. <laughs> so it was a, because it was, partly because it was such a culture shock for her and uh, and partly be, because uh, it was so unfamiliar, but also because she perceived given her experience in a broader evangelical world that it was a little a little cold and, and unfriendly. So I think it's fascinating that that uh, your experience is so radically, in a sense, radically different from from the caricature uh, of the of initial experience in Reformed churches. Yeah, there were lots of adults that I felt really invested themselves in me and in the young people of the church to be encouraging and um, and of course I I had really had no evangelical experience. Uh, it had either been mainline Methodism or this Reformed Church. And so in that sense, I, I, I wasn't comparing Reformed Evangelical, which is part of the reason that I wrote my book, An Unexpected Journey, because it seems to me in American Reformed churches today, most people have either been raised in Reformed churches or they were converted in some evangelical or Pentecostal ministry and only later discovered Reformed Christianity. And in that sense, I had a somewhat unique experience. I was neither raised Reformed nor converted amongst non-Reformed people. You've been teaching at Westminster Seminary since 1974. Yes. Not to put too fine a point on it, you, but you... Uh, I was only five years old when I started <laughs> to teach there. I've seen some of the pictures, actually. That's not that's that's a plausible claim. So... Uh, what is it that that attracts you to Westminster Seminary, particularly Westminster Seminary, California? Now, as you as you think about your ministry here, your work here, what have you loved about doing this work? Well, I taught seven years in Philadelphia, and then when California was opened as a branch campus initially of Westminster Philadelphia, 
Uh, I was eager to come back to California. Uh, I had in many ways enjoyed my time in Philadelphia, but um, I knew that I really was a Californian, and so the opportunity to come back west was was irresistible. I think what had attracted me um, about Westminster and Philadelphia, and I think what we've preserved and, and advanced here in California is, uh, is a number of things. One is a, a commitment to Reformed theology, as we find it in the Reformed Confessions. Uh, a, secondly, a, a commitment to really careful, sound academic work so that we are not divorced from uh, intellectual currents of our time, but in the name of Christ are engaged in those currents, both to advance truth and to challenge error. Um, I, I sensed a real commitment to the churches and to trying to produce a, a, a ministry that would be well-educated and pious and, and committed to the cause of Christ. And, and then I, I sensed um, in the great tradition of uh, Dr. Machen, who, who founded Westminster Seminary, uh, a, a passion about these things, that it's not enough to be coolly intellectual or spiritually just kind of quietist, but that these great truths of Christ are so important, they need to be declared and taught and presented with, with, with a passion that is not only positive, it needs primarily to be positive, but is also willing to call error, error. And um, I think it's been wonderful to see Westminster, California develop in a commitment to all those areas and I think provide a, an outstanding education for future pastors and others who want to study uh, the truth of God's Word. Uh, what are the great changes you've noticed since uh, you first came here in the early 80s? Well, I, I suppose the greatest changes, um, and I'm probably a little slow in noticing things since I'm my wife says I live primarily in the 16th century. Um, <laughs> We've been meaning to talk to you about that. <laughs> that the greatest changes I think uh, I've seen is that um, whereas when I began my career, the, the lines of um, difference between being Reformed and being Evangelical were not all that clear. Um, evangelical seminaries were trying to be academic. Um, evangelical seminaries were uh, fighting the good fight for the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, evangelical seminaries were, were committed to uh, justification by faith. Uh, there were, uh, in the, in the mid-70s, you, you looked around the American scene and the intellectual leadership of the uh, uh, evangelical movement was reformed. And I think that's changed rather dramatically in the last 30, 35 years. Uh, we see many evangelicals moving away from the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture, many evangelicals challenging the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith. I think we see uh, a, a real decline in many evangelical circles about the value of an educated ministry. And um, so, uh, ironically, I think we haven't changed that much, but the environment in which we find ourselves has changed a good bit, and so we look more distinctive um, and, and, and I think that in changing environment has helped us come to a greater clarity of our distinctiveness uh, and it's, imp I think, even greater importance in the world today than we saw 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
Scott Clark here with the first Office Hours giveaway code. The code is WRG1974. That's WRG1974. Be one of the first 10 people to email us at officehours at wscal.edu and we will send you a free copy of Bob Godfrey's latest book, John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. Be sure to send us your name, your service address, mention that you heard this episode of Office Hours and mention the code WRG1974 to win. Now back to our Office Hours interview with Bob Godfrey. The listener may know you as a conference speaker um, at uh, you know, Ligonier conferences or PCRTs or, or other conferences, the, the seminary conference in January. The listener may know you as a writer, uh, but the listener, unless, you know, the listener's one of, uh, what, 800 or so uh, graduates or alumni that we've had here, may not know you as a, as a seminary prof and teacher. What, what do you love about teaching in a seminary, teaching here at Westminster Seminary, California? Well, as a student, I, I was privileged to study with some wonderfully gifted uh, professors who were not only uh, brilliant and, and leaders in their field, but, but outstanding communicators as teachers. And uh, Wilhelm Pauk, I remember in particular, uh, saying to us as graduate students, the only excuse for a lecture is to fire the imagination. If you just want to pass on information, you can do it more efficiently than, than in a lecture. And that's always sort of stayed with me. And I think, um, um, I think the reason a lot of people don't like history is that historians don't do a good job of communicating clearly why what they're saying is important. Uh, students often come away sort of deluged with facts and figures and, and don't see um, how hi- history is really designed to, to try to explain the, the movement of human experience and the formation of human culture. Why do humans behave the way they do? Why do they act the way they do in light of their historical experience? And particularly in teaching the history of the church then to help students see how the church has developed in the way it has uh, through the ancient period, medieval period, reformation, modern period. Um, this is family history. And if you can't make family history interesting, um, Get another, trouble. Yeah, get another job. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's been sort of my goal to try to inspire students to see that um, the study of history really helps them understand who they are, who the people they're ministering are, and, and is a vital element of being an effective pastor, I think. Do you experience what, what I think I experience, and that is uh, sometimes with students there's a certain uh, reluctance to engage history. Sometimes they don't come very well prepared from their undergraduate uh, education to, uh, to learn history. Um, and students often come because they want to learn Greek, they want to learn Hebrew, and, and I sometimes, as a, as a historian, feel I have to lead students along and, and help them see why this is important. Um, and sometimes they're a little reluctant. No, I think that's true, and I think um, part of uh, our job is to help them see that uh, the study of church history is the study of people studying the Bible. And and therefore, actually, you're vastly helped in your study of the Bible by knowing church history because you can see the ways in which various parts of the Bible have been approached in various um, periods of the church's history. And you can kind of profit from seeing what worked and what didn't work, what led people astray, what led them deeper into the truth, so that... Um, 
you know, there is an American tendency to think that we can just kind of approach everything de novo, uh, start over with a clean slate, and, and that's actually a waste of time. Uh, ironically, I think people think history is a waste of time, but the reverse <laughs> is true. You can save yourself a lot of missteps if you watch how other people misstepped. Yeah, I mean, Henry Ford, uh, evidently, you know, Henry Ford's famous for saying history is bunk. Right. Um, and, you know, and maybe he, he was justly skeptical in some respects. Uh, but ne- nevertheless, uh, Henry Ford certainly learned from other people's mistakes, and he was able to build on that and make a pretty efficient uh, manufacturing business. Yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about your work as a writer and as a historian. You have a fairly eclectic uh, st- uh, group of interests as a historian. Uh, I, you know, there are three figures that I think of uh, when I think of Bob Godfrey, and they're an interesting group. Uh, Calvin, which is not entirely surprising. Sister Amy Semple McPherson, which might surprise some people. And then you, you have, a, let's say, a mild fascination with Adolf Hitler. Can, can, how do these three figures relate, and what, what do they say about you? <laughs> well, w- part of my interest in uh, McPherson and Hitler is not any form of agreement with their <laughs> points of view, but I, I am fascinated by the phenomenon in the modern world of great mass communicators, what makes them tick, what makes them successful. Um, uh, Amy Semple McPherson is a very important figure and a somewhat neglected figure in church history because uh, she is really a pioneer of the Pentecostal movement, which now is is perhaps the single largest um, influence on a lot of Reformed churches or pressures on Reformed churches. And it's important to see where this comes from, why it appeals, how it works. Uh, my interest in, in Adolf Hitler in the Second World War is... Um, the to, to challenge the the huge modern notion that that is not just in secular thought but is in a great deal of um, um, Christian thought today as well that that you know gee people really are just basically good um, Adolf Hitler was not a monster Adolf Hitler was not insane Adolf Hitler was evil. And unless we can maintain the category of evil in looking at history and looking at at human nature and looking at the world that that surrounds us, we are going to lose Christianity. And uh, so I I think Adolf Hitler remains a a very important human figure to challenge the easy um, Pelagian notions of human nature that so easily float around us. Um, it's important that we remember the history of fascism and communism, that when secularists say Christians are violent people, we have to confess there's plenty of sin and too much violence in the history of Christianity. But the history of Christianity pales in terms of violence before what secularizing tendencies in communism and fascism brought us in the 20th century in terms of violence. So there's a kind of apologetic as well as theological and historical interest to some of these disparate figures and and yeah well hitler you're in in effect you're suggesting that an interest in hitler is is a way of vindicating uh calvin's doctrine of man and absolutely augustine's doctrine of man absolutely um it's true i mean just from a statistical point of view uh the number of people slaughtered under totalitarian secularist regimes in the 20th century uh dwarfs uh 
probably all of the bodies slain, you know, in the in the great in the Crusades. Um, oh, by incalculable you know, numbers. Yeah, by by factors of ten or a hundred or more. Because we're we're talking about what something like twenty million Russian kulaks, and I, you know how many? I I don't really know how many people died in the Second World War. But without fascism, you know, certainly. I I think we're talking easily in the area of thirty to forty million people. So um, and, and then you think of the you know Khmer Rouge and all of the other right, uh, and then the the slaughters in in Africa late in the twentieth century. So you're probably looking at something like a hundred million people, which is I think that's. I mean, those numbers are almost defy conception, really. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, your most recent volume is uh, John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor. It's published by Crossway, and it's available through the bookstore at um, www.wscal.edu slash bookstore. Uh, and shipping is, what, uh, 5 or, or $6. Um, so everyone will, will want to get a copy of this. And I see that a, a number of uh, interesting and important people have said nice things uh, about the book. Uh, why did why did you write it? What uh, why yet another Calvin biography? The, besides the fact that this is 2009, it's the 500th anniversary of of Calvin's birth. Well, I o- over the years, I I think um, one of my strengths as a communicator, teacher, and even scholar is to be able to uh, popularize certain things that other scholars make tedious and. Uh, as I, I've read a lot about Calvin over the years, it, it seems to me in an awful lot of the books, the Calvin I find in his own writing doesn't come through mm-hmm. very well in the books about him. Can you, um, na- can you name a book or two where you think that? Or? Well, I, I, I think of a, a biography like T.H.L. Parker's, which mm-hmm. is, a, is a very good biography, but you come away without a mm-hmm. very good introduction to his thought mm-hmm. from that book. Or on the on the thought side, you could think of Francis Fondel's book, um, oh. Calvin's what is it, Theology or Thought? Its sources and something. I don't have the exact title in front of me. That's okay. But uh, it's it's a very good introduction to his thought, but it um, tends to be kind of heavy and scholarly. And um, uh, I think what's remarkable about Calvin, and 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 I think why I tried to write this book is that if you ask Calvin what was your essential work he would say, to be a pastor. And we remember him today largely as a theologian or a biblical commentator, and he certainly deserves to be remembered for those things. But he would have said, well, those are just supportive activities that I engaged in um, to to help others be better pastors. And so I wanted to try to bring to life um, Calvin the pastor. And so what I tried to do in this book was to show some of the interconnections between his life and his thought because most of the books have separated those two things. And I don't think they can be separated. I don't think they should be separated. And I really wanted to write a, a readable introduction to Calvin uh, that would, would, um, would communicate something of the attractiveness of Calvinism uh, in the 16th century. I think today uh, there are people attracted to Calvinism, but I think most people, when they hear the word Calvinism, think this cold, dry, dreadful sort of religion that um, I think they'd be surprised to know that in, in a period of, of a few decades, millions and millions of Europeans were drawn uh, to this uh, theology, uh, to this vision of biblical Christianity. Why is that? What what was attractive about it? And that's what I try to, to uh, present in this book. I 
Uh, I don't try to offer all of Calvin's arguments for the conclusions he came to, but I try to to show something of the attractiveness of the vision of Christianity that uh, that Calvin presented. The subtitle of the book says Pilgrim and Pastor, and these are, you, you've touched on one of them, uh, Calvin as pastor. Uh, the other is, is Calvin as pilgrim, and this is not an adjective that people often use of Calvin, and yet just, you know, 30 seconds reflection on, on his biography bears out the truth of that adjective. And, and so I w- I'd like you to talk about that, but I have another question before we get there, because it's connected. Do you, on, on a personal level, sort of identify with him? And your, your biography is an unexpected journey, and Calvin certainly had an unexpected journey. He didn't expect to end up in Geneva, and he didn't expect to spend his life there. Right. In fact, when I, uh, when I wrote my autobiography, my, my first choice for a title was how I took Calvin into my heart. The publisher thought that was sort of, well, there's a good Dutch word, sputten. Sputten, yes. Uh, speaking too lightly of holy things. So, and then my second choice was, um, for the title was Slowly Converted, because Calvin talked about yeah. being suddenly converted, and I thought that'd be kind of interesting, but the publisher didn't like that either. So I, I'm stuck with this rather bland title, yeah. Unexpected Journey. But um, yes, in that sense, um, Calvin and I, um, it's a little hard to talk about the two of us in the same sentence, Um, yeah, went on a journey, a spiritual pilgrimage that was somewhat unexpected. And um, uh, yeah, I think our theology, our life's callings flowed out of that journey. Calvin's self-consciousness was uh, that he was a pilgrim. Uh, the modern picture of Calvin is of a jackbooted thug conquering Geneva, or, you know, conquering Europe single-handedly and slaughtering, her- you know, the Bible in one hand and, and a sword in the other, slaughtering heretics. Uh, as ever, as if he never had a moment of introspection or self-doubt <laughs> or spiritual growth, and that's just untrue. The whole picture is untrue from beginning to end. We, we seem to be sort of between these extreme pictures of Calvin. On the one hand, you have sort of Bausma and Selinger, you know, Calvin twisted into self-doubt and, and you know, trapped in a labyrinth and so forth. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you've got the sort of early modern Calvinist, you know, a tyrant uh, squashing human freedom. Uh, how, can you respond briefly to those caricatures? Well, I think that's it. They are just those things, caricatures. I think uh, it's always interesting to ask uh, what makes a historical figure tick psychologically. But um, the problem is that you seldom have enough information to actually answer that question with any success. Uh, Calvin uh, was certainly troubled in his soul, but the trouble that he felt was the trouble with sin and a righteous God. It was was very similar to what Luther uh, had felt. And, and it was a pilgrimage to try to deal with that question. Uh, Rome has one way of dealing with the problem of sin, and the Reformation, from its study of Scripture, has a very different way. And uh, Calvin said it was hard for him to shift from one to the other. Um, uh, I think um, a lot of uh, Protestants have never spent any time trying to understand the attractions of Rome. That's an important thing to do. And Calvin did understand those attractions, and it was only with difficulty that he shook free of that and and found uh, peace in Christ uh, through faith, as what he felt was taught in the Scripture. Well, this has been delightful as always, and that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. 
go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.